HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. The world is changing faster than ever, and you need a website to go with it. Whether you're a seasoned pro looking to build your following or just starting out with a brand new idea, you need a landing page that's bold, innovative, and uniquely yours. Whatever your passion, you need a web designer with experience, panache, and heart. We can't help you with any of that. Hi, I'm Lou Bank. And I'm Greg Benson. Are we Silicon Valley tech visionaries? No, we're podcast hosts. And that's basically the same thing. And we're here to tell you about Ancestral Agave Syrup. Ancestral Agave Syrup is the 100% pure nectar of the agave plant. Now, wait a minute, you're thinking. I've had 100% pure agave nectar. Well, not like this, you haven't. That stuff is processed with a diffuser, which introduces acid. Plus, it comes from Blue Weber, a monoculture that dominates farms, depletes the soil, and won't help you grow your brand or expand your e-commerce functionality. Ancestral Agave Syrup, on the other hand, is made by slowly cooking down the pure agua miel from Salmiana Agaves in Hidalgo and Tlaxcala, two states that have been harvesting those plants for generations. It also won't expand your e-commerce functionality, but it will grow your brand if your brand is person who makes kick-ass margaritas or pecan pies or pancakes. Unfortunately, the families behind this tasty stuff are being offered big beer company bucks to rip out their agave and plant barley instead, which would be a crime because ancestral agave syrup is about as far from the processed stuff as 100% pure Vermont maple syrup is from that sticky bottle at a diner. So don't build a homepage from one of several easy-to-use templates, but do grab Ancestral Agave Syrup. Today, our first 25 customers will also receive a special limited edition Agave Superhero comic book. So do not wait. Protect the land, make better drinks, and save the bats by grabbing some today. Go to... Wait, what was that about bats? Uh, yeah, it's an important food source on the migration path of the Mexican long-nosed bat. Huh. Yeah, the flowering stalks of the agave also provide protection from predators. Oh, that's cool. Should we get back to the ad now? Yeah, let's do that. Go to AncestralAgave.com or click the link in the show notes to grab some today. Ancestral Agave Syrup. It won't help you build a beautiful website, but it will make your cocktails taste really, really good. Dabba, 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 dabba
I'm Lou Bank. I'm Karen Newman, spirits and cocktail journalist. I'm Ana Garcia Lascurain, Mucho Chocolate Museum. And this is Agave Roadshow, the critically acclaimed award-winning podcast that helps Gringax bartenders better understand agave, agave spirits, and rural Mexico. And today, oh, hang on, my notes got buried in here. Okay, and today in this episode, what we're going to be talking about is the question, uh, Kara, that it's Kara, not Kara. I'll answer to either. All good. <laughs> okay. I, I think I've been mispronouncing your name for the entirety of our relationship. So uh, what I want to talk about today, Kara, is this question that you posed in your wine enthusiast op-ed. Is it time to leave tequila alone? You asked, when it comes to pushing tequila's boundaries, how far is too far? So, you know, I think to start, do you maybe want to elaborate on that question or like, I don't know, give it context for anyone who hasn't yet read the piece? Sure. Uh, well, the article came about because I had uh, received a bottle of Quinta Leza tequila, and it's a, a bottle that uh, the liquid is finished in barrels of previously held coffee. So it's coffee finished. And, you know, that's that's sort of interesting, I thought. But at the same time, as I was researching the bottle, uh, I came across a, a video that they posted on their site. And the founder and CEO of the, the company uh, basically introduced the tequila in a video and said the tequila world has seen enough Blancos, enough Repos, so on and so forth. It's been done so many times and it's time to come up with something different, a little more innovative. And it just kind of made me stop and think for a moment because I had just finished uh, a monster review of 50 plus Blancos, which was lots of fun, but uh, it really kind of set me back. And I, I just started thinking there was one sentence from from that video. Uh, the world has seen enough Blancos. And I was like, what? Really? Yeah. Have we really seen enough of them? Do we really need something else? And it just kind of sent me down this this rabbit hole because there are just so many different bottles out there where uh, there's been some kind of innovation. And my point of view is that innovation is is great. Love it. Thrilled about it. But I don't think that innovation just for the sake of innovation is enough. So that's my my point of view in a in a nutshell. Cool. And uh and Anna, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, first of all, I would love to read that review about the 50 Blancos and then try all of them. <laughs> <laughs> I myself like the Blancos, and, and of course, they're very good reposados and, and stuff, but, uh, but I am a tequila lover. And I, I, I have to coincide with you, Cara, in terms of chocolate making, which is what what, uh, what we do. Um, there's a lot of the, the chocolate world has become in the past decade one uh, organic, let's say, industry or, or take away the word industry, which is, I think, different than, than tequila which has a more formal structure of production. And so innovation for chocolate is the trend right now. And there's a, lo a lot to be done yet. I would, I would say that we should keep pushing innovation in chocolate because we're beginning a new era of flavor, of combinations, of different, of understanding the varieties of cacaos everywhere in, in the world, not just in the American continent. And I don't know, I, I would like to, um, I don't know so much about agave, but I would like to understand the differences between the two of them 
considering uh, where they come from. And that by that, I mean the plant, the agave for tequila and the cacao for chocolate. And I'll leave it there. Okay. Interesting. Uh, so, you know, when I when I think about this, and, and particularly that phrase, pushing tequila's boundaries, you know, when I when I read that um, in, in your piece, Kara, my head went back to when I was about eight years old and um, and, and I'd get in trouble uh, for fighting with my brother, my older brother. So, you know, my my response whenever we got yelled at was, well, hey, he started it. And it's kind of the way I feel about tequila. And honestly, kind of like chocolate as well, you know, that, uh, well, tequila started this, started pushing the boundaries back in the, uh, in the 1800s. And, and that's in essence how we got industrialized tequila and chocolate. I got to believe it was even before the 1800s that it became industrialized. Um, and so I, you know, there's, there's this quote that I got from Reed Spear of Quinta Quantos, um, that I'm going to share with you guys uh, here. So I'm with Coronado for sure. Tequila is enough on its own, but only if it's good tequila. And honestly, out of the thousands of brands, I can probably think of eight that I would want to drink. I think tequila is a complete train wreck. So coffee finish and a tequila, no thanks. Throwing stuff at the wall to see what sticks. Don't need any more of that. And... If you want good quality agave spirits, if you ask me, you got to go to the mezcal category. There's a joke I like to tell people when I talk about mezcal. And uh, we start talking about agave versus the category mezcal, agave spirit versus mezcal. And then they ask about tequila. And I say, there's a convenient way to know if you've got a good agave spirit in the bottle you're holding in your hand. And that is, if it says tequila on it, it's trash. Tequila is <laughs> a complete train wreck. Wow, that's that's quite a statement. I I yeah I I completely agree. And you know and and the fact that it's coming from a guy who makes his living selling. Uh, in fact, I think his brand is uncertified agave spirits. And I think there's sort of that division, right? That the the uh, Uncertified agave spirits look down on the mezcal. The mezcal looks down on the tequila, and yet the tequila sells more than the mezcal. And the mezcal sells sells more than the uncertified agave spirits. You see, that's also what I love about people in the agave industry. I mean, I'm I'm a generalist, and I I cover you know everything from whiskey to to uh, shochu. But I think that people in the agave and the tequila mezcal space, they are more hot under the collar about these things than any other spirit. I mean, people get so, so riled up. I mean, I saw some of the comments, I posted the uh, link to the article on Instagram and people are really, they just get so fired up. They want to fight. They are always ready to fight. <laughs> Is the same true in chocolate, Anna? Well, by all means, and, and I'm thinking <laughs> my perspective of tequila has to be different than your perspective of tequila being in Chicago in New York. I'm a Mexican. I live in Mexico City, and I have a story with tequila since I was partying in high school, to put it that way. And back then, tequila was a very different scene than it is right now. I'm talking about the 80s in Mexico, and there weren't that many brands of tequila. I don't think it was so popular in the U.S. yet. Please correct me if I'm wrong. And this this boom of tequila is is happening let's say in, in a transnational way. I mean, 
it's more so for the U.S. even than for Mexico, I gather, in, in a way. But also for us Mexicans, it's a patrimonial thing. Tequila has been recognized. The, the agave landscape has been recognized by UNESCO as an intangible heritage. So that gives tequila this unique characteristic. I don't know if it's the same with whiskey or other drinks of being very Mexican. I mean, certified by UNESCO. And talking about something that is no longer just a product that you can buy at a store, but a whole cultural happening, let's say. And same thing for chocolate. We claim the origins of chocolate in Mexico. So we're talking about two very delicate issues for, for those of us who love those two things. Huh. You know, it makes me wonder what the world would look like if um, in the same way that Mexico claimed the denomination of origin for tequila, it had claimed the denomination of origin for chocolate. Well, there is a denomination of origin for cacao, one of the cacaos in Mexico, and it's been very debated. I, I, it's, it's a delicate issue, as I'm sure you know more than me, than origin denominations. And what Mexico would like to do is not claim the denomination of origin, but to write the cacao landscapes and the cacao culture in UNESCO's intangible heritage, so as to make it more of a, of a patrimonial thing than a commercial product. <laughs> That's interesting. So if you if you look at that as well with tequila, you know, it's interesting to me if you because in essence, I feel like that's sort of what you're saying, Kara, with your uh, with your your piece. Yeah, that it should. I'm sorry, I'm not quite sure what's meant by patrimonial here. So I'm not sure if I'm quite following the, the thread. So patrimonial heritage to me is just uh, is just sort of another way of saying cultural heritage. Um, right. This okay, so that yeah, that's my interpretation of it. That it's saying, look, this is something that's handed down um, from generations, and it belongs to us because it's been handed down. It's a gift um, from our parents. You know, patrimonial certainly suggests father, but to me, it's it's you know, it's it's from an entire family that you've received this gift over the generations, and having outsiders come in, and I believe could be wrong, but I believe the guys who own that brand. Uh, um, uh, that you were talking about, Kara, the, the, the coffee finish brand, um, are not Mexican or of Mexican heritage. And so you sort of get these outsiders pulling it, uh, pulling tequila in this direction away from that, that cultural heritage or patrimonial heritage. Is that in essence what you're saying? I understand. Yeah, that, that is, that is the, the gist of it. Yeah. I do think it's important to respect the traditions of, of tequila. And uh, there's certainly a lot of producers who are doing that and a lot of uh, people who who enjoy consuming tequila and, and, and who advocate for, for that. And I think it's important. Um, at the same time, you do definitely have people who are, as you put it, outsiders who uh, may not have the context of, of uh, its tradition. It's not something that was handed down through, through their family. And they're trying to find ways to, 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 to generate excitement, but also to, to make money. And it's hard to ignore just how enormous the, the consumer market is for tequila. I mean, it is outpacing vodka. It is outpacing whiskey. It is, I mean, it is the runaway train, which is exciting, but that means that you also are going to, you know, there's always someone with their, their hand out, you know, that's, that's just the way of, of of the business world, you know, for better or for worse. And it means that, yeah, a lot of the time there are people who don't understand or respect 
or, or care about traditions. They just care about making money. And I'm not saying that that's what's going on in this situation, but I certainly could see um, um, a situation where where it could be thought of that way. You know, it's, it's interesting you use that phrase, runaway train, because to me that harkens back to Reed's quote about the train wreck. Oh. <laughs> in, right, inevitably those runaway trains, that's where they they had but you know so so when i hear you say that you know the thing that's going through my head um uh, now is okay so you've got you've got let's let's go back to that train analogy right you've got this runaway train on one path but then you've got this other train um that's appeared over the last well i'm gonna say since uh since the birth of fortaleza since 2005 right where okay. what i'm seeing is this trend of tequila brands going back to their roots in a way that I didn't see until some of these uh, um, some of these boundary pushing ideas came into the field, right? So if you look at uh, if you look at at when Fortaleza started in 2005, well, what preceded that in 2004 were the normas of Mexico, right? The regulations that define what tequila is and what tequila is not. It was in 2004 that they allowed flavored tequilas to enter the market. And so, so you, recent. Yeah, well, I mean, recent for people of our age, yeah. But, but, but so, so fairly recent, but if you think about that 2004, right? And that's a boundary pushing idea that I would say sends it in this one direction. Suddenly you get Guillermo Sosa coming back into the industry after his grandfather had taken the family out, I don't know, what, 50 years before, 40 years before? He comes back into the industry to try and bring some of those traditions back, I think. And then, and then actually, if you want to take a look at like uh, Casamigos, right? Casamigos launched in 2013. George Clooney started a tequila brand with his friend Randy Gerber in 2013. They sold it in 2017, right? And that's, I mean, you can look at celebrity tequila really starting before that with Patron, with uh, Paul Mitchell, if you think of people who make hair care products as celebrities. And I don't have any hair, so I don't know that I have a voice in that. But if you look at the, the like that 2013 and then 2017, it gets bought for a billion dollars and and the, the, the world goes crazy and, and, and starts suddenly more celebrities getting into the market and you really see a boom at that point, right? in the tequila sales. But the other thing that you'll see, if you look at the statistics on the CRT's website, the website of the regulatory body that oversees what is and is not tequila, uh, what does and does not conform to that norma, on their website, at the same time that you see that boom, the boom is primarily in the area of 100% agave tequila, not mixtos. So, you know, before that, they were kind of neck and neck. You'd see about as many bottles, as many liters of 100% agave tequila selling as you would of mixto tequila. And then it starts taking off at the exact same time that Casamigos gets sold and everybody starts going crazy for tequila. And now it's about three to one. You sell three liters of 100% agave tequila to every one liter of mixto. And at the same time that this happens, right? So that's one, what I would argue, one trajectory of the market in, going in the, in, the, in the direction of tradition, 
at the same time that it feels like it's maybe going the opposite of that. And that's also exactly when David Suro launches Siembra Valle Ancestral, which is even more of a throwback to the traditions of tequila, where things, you know, the agave is being cooked underground in the stone line earthen oven, it's being milled by hand using wooden mallets, right? It, I mean, this is literally hearkening back to the origins of tequila in a way that it hadn't in, I don't know, 100, 150 years. Maybe when you get a, uh, a traditional product pushing the boundaries of tradition, you also at the same time get the opposite reaction of the people who really care about it, trying to take it uh, back to its roots. Well, I think also part of the question is, even if you're doing it with respect for for the traditions and you're working with a um, let's say a producer in Mexico who who has a, a long history of, of doing tequila the right way. Um, at what point is it okay to take it in a new direction? I mean, to pull in non-traditional finishing techniques, or to, for example, I don't want to pick on just the the, the one the one tequila, but the, the coffee finishing. But there's another one that's. Uh, uh, there it is, Volcan de Mitierra. You know, lovely, lovely tequila uh, made in, in, made with respect, made with care, made by a female producer. And they're also, they have a a luxury spirit that blends Repo and Yeho and Extra and Yeho. I mean, that's more of like a, a cognac style. It's blending. It's it's not really messing with the underlying spirit, but is is that okay? Is that good innovation? Is it bad innovation? Is it innovation at all? I don't know. That's up for, for people to decide. Okay, so so then uh, you're, you're people, Anna, and you're people who drinks tequila. Do you, and, and you drink aged tequila, yes? You said you love Blancos, but you've been known to drink an aged tequila. How, oh, do, you, how do you feel about the idea of blending the different ages? I, I don't mind the idea of intervening the finished product. What I mean is that you can age it in different barrels, as you were describing. I'm, of course a noobster compared to the information that you guys handle. But I'm thinking again, going back and looking at the at the photograph that I'm looking at behind you, Lou, going back to the earth. And that is because it all comes from the same place. So um, the traditions go back to the protection of this landscape, which is uh, has a regulatory, you know, body that takes care of that. So what's the problem in blending and doing other things with the basic product? This is a question that I, I give you guys. Um, I, I don't understand why you can't have the freedom of transforming the basic product with different techniques if the landscape is already protected and the species is protected and you can't do anything about that one, right? Oh my goodness! You know, you, you've actually you're you're jumping me ahead a couple of points, and I love that you are, Anna. So, you know, I I, I also got a, um, a a voicemail this morning, literally um, from uh, Salvador Rosales, uh, Chava Rosales of Cascaween, and it, I asked him his thoughts on the op-ed piece, and here's here's what he had to say. What motivates me most about tequila right now is that each batch that is produced naturally tends to have differences in a controlled process. It's also very exciting to see that there are people who are increasingly interested in knowing where tequila comes from, how it is made, and how part of the process and culture of tequila is respected. 
realmente los tequilas blancos como tal, lote a lote. White tequilas will always have differences from batch to batch because the raw material is never the same. They will all taste like blue agave because of the denomination of origin. But today's blue agave tastes different from tomorrow's, from the harvest a year from now and from the harvest seven years from now. Same as with the fermentation process. It won't develop the same today as it will in a week's time. I would say the challenges of the industry are how to maintain excessive growth, not only to meet consumer demand, but also various natural factors so that it continues to be a sustainable industry. In terms of raw materials, agave, damage to the ecosystem and water. As you know, all distilled spirits use too much water in the process. And as demand increases, this resource is exploited more and more, and we know this is a limited natural resource. So, you know, I think that that speaks a lot to what you're saying, because I think we tend to think of small producers um, as the ones who are going to have more respect for the land than the large producers. Uh, but, oh, no, you're shaking your head, Anna. Well, not necessarily, you know. Tell me. Well, I don't know. Again, with costs, I can't tell from one from the other. But uh, sustainability is an issue, right? Because it all yeah. comes from landscape. So if you have this enormous need for tequila in a growing industry, how do you make it so that you're talking about water and I'm talking about land? How do you make it so that land and water are still sustainable in, in a, an ever-growing and demanding industry? And small doesn't necessarily mean sustainable. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've certainly uh, run across that myself in my trips where it's the, the small producers that I fall in love with inevitably. Um, but when I look at how they impact the land with each leader versus how the, the how the larger producers impact the land the kind of infrastructure they have to maintain their waste um in a more responsible way than the smaller producers like i see a lot of what you're you're talking about but then you know my head goes to exactly what you're saying about protecting the uh, the, the the landscape and the landscape in this case, particularly if you're talking about Jalisco and tequila, the landscape is monoculture blue Weber agave that is um, genetically homogenous. And it's the opposite of protection. And, I, you know, it's, there's, there's this balance that they're trying to maintain, and I don't think they're doing a very good job of it, but there's this balance they're trying to maintain of we have an opportunity to make a whole bunch of money we need to grow uh, the Blue Weber agave as quickly as possible, but then we need to protect the future of Blue Weber agave. But almost nobody's growing from seed. You know, I've, I've, I've visited now um, one tequilero who is, there's a second one who's also doing it, I'm told. None of them have been doing it long enough um, that they're actually harvesting the plants that they've germinated from seed yet. But if it's one percent of what's being grown right now i'd be surprised if it were that much right so is it even really like when we start talking about aging in coffee barrels like is i think it's almost uh almost a diversion from the real issue which <laughs> is why aren't we talking about agave being grown from seed why isn't that the thing that uh, that the geeks are chasing is tequila that's made from agave grown from seed or tequila that's made in a state that's not Jalisco. Why isn't that what we're chasing? I don't think most people even know that that's an issue. 
You know, most people I think are looking at the bottles on the shelves and the the marketing that comes out, and they're not really aware that this is something to to consider. Okay, so how do we make them aware? Is there another op-ed piece? Can we do another op? But can we get people even angrier with you? Oh dear! <laughs> All I need to do is just sort of whisper the word "cristalino," and people get angry at me. <laughs> Amen. That was a shout out to you, Chris Maxwell. So, um, you know, it, it, it's interesting. I was I was talking with my friend uh, Ismael Gomez. Ismael is a um, he's he's got a mezcal brand, but he's also an importer of Mexican spirits in general. Uh, under uh, his banner, Leica Spirits. I got this really nice quote from him that I want to share with you. And now talking about the tequilas and industry, I believe that the industry of tequila, in order to innovate, they need to start expanding their horizons within the Mexican market to allow uh, small tequila producers to be able to sell it at affordable prices in order for uh, make the the country of tequila, one of the number one consumers of tequila by allowing uh, lower taxes in order for small brands and also accounts to to give this beautiful spirit a chance to compete within Mexico. So, you know, if you look at, again, that CRT website, they'll, they'll tell you that in 2022, that 651 million liters of tequila were produced and 419 million of those liters were exported. That's 64%, meaning that in the country of Mexico, 36% of tequila is consumed, right? 268 million of those liters landed in the USA. That's over 41% of total production. As a consequence, you know, I, I have to ask myself, you know, tequila, is it being directed to the palates of an international market? And maybe this is what is leading it away from Mexican tradition. And maybe Ismail is right that just literally changing taxation laws in Mexico could be the real solution to changing the trajectory. Well, I, I agree with Ismael in, in his perception, and you just said the numbers, that, that tequila is targeted to the U.S. market, and all those varieties that you talk about are not to be seen that much in Mexico. And again, Lou, you're the expert on this, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, for us Mexicans, there are a lot fewer brands of tequila, and we're not aware of everything that you're saying about the the branding of, of famous people and and the diversity of flavors. I do think it's catered to an international palette, but more to an international budget. So I would uh -huh. have to agree with Ismael. And I, I would say the trend in Mexico and definitely among younger people is mezcal. And uh -huh. you're an expert in mezcales. So even tequila is, is seen as something more industrial, whereas mezcal is seen as something more, you know, crafted, by families and each person, each one of my friends knows this mezcal maker somewhere and brings a bottle from there, you know, and tequila is just something either from the past or from for the USA, something like that. We all drink tequila, but I don't think it's as widespread as it is in the US anymore. And you just said the number, so 
Yeah. Well, that's interesting. So you, we were supposed to get together while uh, while I was in town, and and somehow both your husband and my wife got sick, so that didn't happen. That's, but okay. right. But what I was going to bring over to your house because you had mentioned you drink tequila was a bottle of uh, of Chava's Cascaween, which is this you know his his distillery. It's really beautiful. His distillery has the capacity to make three hundred thousand liters a year, and he limits his production to thirty thousand liters a year, and. You know, some of it, none of it, I would say, is industrial in the way that a Jose Cuervo is. And don't hear that as an insult, Jose Cuervo. You know, I'll talk to you guys soon. <laughs> um, but uh, but I do find it closer, so so much, particularly the, the small batch stuff, um, closer to the agave spirits that I love from places like Oaxaca and Durango and Puebla and Michoacan. Did I... Did I share that bottle with you? No, and I'm looking forward. God, I'm such to that. a bad friend. Next, I know you are. <laughs> we have to pair it with some chocolate. No, I, I, looking forward to to tasting that and understanding more of what you're saying. You both leave me very curious about now trying all of the tequilas that you are getting in the U.S. that we're not necessarily drinking in Mexico. And and it's interesting, you know, that the cross-border communication in ways that one cannot imagine. Huh. Interesting. But you make a really interesting point, actually, though, about how uh, about mezcal. That that really seems to have resisted a lot of the some of these innovations. And I wonder if that's why. I mean, if you see barrel-aged mezcal, it's it's sort of startling to me. I don't see very many of them. I mean, think about a coffee-aged mezcal. That's kind of mind-blowing. Oh, it's it's funny. When I think about that, I would actually say that there... So it, when I think of, of coffee-aged mezcal, my head goes immediately to... Uh, um, to Margarito Cortez down in Miahuatlan, who was the first guy to introduce me to a uh, uh, what he would call a mezcal, though it's an uncertified agave spirit, um, what he would call a, a coffee distilled mezcal. And, you know, you can say pachuga, but traditionally pachuga has protein and this is just a one ingredient pachuga. So is it? It's If you ask the guys at uh, the CRM or Comer Cam or whatever they're calling themselves this week, that would be an abacado con um, or sorry, a destilado con. Uh, so they distilled the agave spirit with coffee beans. He also does a version uh, where he distills it just with cacao beans. Beans. And then he does this mong mango, mango and habanero version, and it's beautiful um, and it's traditional. And then I think about it's, it's so funny, Kara. When I read your piece initially, I was like, oh yeah, coffee age. I mean, why not just drink Kahlua? And then I think, oh yeah, Kahlua. That's a Mexican spirit, and everybody drinks Kahlua in the USA, and nobody complains about Kahlua. Like, is Kahlua more offensive than what they're doing at? I can't remember the name of the brand, Quinta. Uh, laser, whatever that is, uh, is it more offensive? And then I started looking at the website of that brand, and I see that they're sourcing their coffee from Chiapas, which I absolutely love, which then sent me back to the Kahlua website. Sorry. Sent me back to the Kahlua website, and I saw that just a few years ago, like six or seven, eight years ago, they started uh, on a mission 
to source 100% of their coffee beans, Kahlua did this, 100% of their coffee beans from Veracruz, from Mexico, in order to support these Mexican coffee farmers. And then they list all of these benefits that the farmers have received as a result, where they're actually supporting their ability to do regenerative farming. They're creating green toilets for them, or dry toilets as they're called. And I start thinking about all of these benefits, and then I come back to, wait, you didn't even really add coffee to your tequila. You just aged coffee beans in this wooden barrel, and then you took the beans out, and you put coffee in. That actually, I'm not even sure that I'd qualify that. When I think about the, the, the tequilas that are aged in the bourbon barrels, they're all aged in bourbon barrels. So why is that, right? Like, that feels like it's more Mexican to me to use a barrel that was used to age coffee beans from Mexico. It feels more Mexican to me than the tequila aged Mexican. Like, I can define what that is. But it feels more of a place than the uh, the tequila that's aged in a barrel that comes out of Kentucky or Indiana or California or Ohio or wherever they happen to make that bourbon. You see, these things are black and white. That's what's so exciting about thinking yes. about these topics. Yeah. yeah. Yes, exactly that. And that actually, that brings me around to this quote that I got that I, I wanted to uh, to make the last quote of the episode. You you had suggested, Kara, that I speak with uh, Juan Coronado at Tequila Mejente. Mm -hmm. Did I say that name correctly, Anna? Yes. Okay. Um, not the Juan part. That one I was confident of. So uh, so here's here's the quote from Juan. You have brands and you have producers and you have intellectual people in universities like investigating on the, the preservation of agave, all divided instead of like all being united and looking for a common successful road and everybody's so divided. Uh, oh, well, you use, uh, I don't know, you buy agave from, no, from seeds, you use autoclave. You use uh, diffusers, you use this, you use that. Everybody's pointing fingers at each other. Is, and the idea here is to celebrate Mexico, not to break Mexico apart on our table. And I think all, this, all these factors, you know, they have to be left to the individual consumer to decide which tequila they want to drink. And that's it. It's their choice. They are the ultimate consumers. They're the ones that are pulling out the wallets to pay for things. They have to find which is the one that agrees with them, the ones that they like the most, the one that they like to drink need, the one that they wanted a margarita. They're the pros. We need to leave it up to them. Well, I, I, I also believe that, that tradition is not static. It's something that gets built day by day. So new traditions are overlapping and layering with the old traditions. So one cannot be a purist as to a certain technique of, of, of production of any food because it's evolving all the time. So, so that in one part. And on the other hand, what is Mexican? The definition of Mexican then again becomes it, it's not something static and tequila should not be something static, but something that is evolving with time and will also evolve in terms of having influences from other places like those barrels you just mentioned. And yeah, it, it's, it is pretty much up to the consumer because those will be their traditions. They also play a part in this continuum or this relationship between the producer in Mexico and the consumer in the U.S. 
and they shouldn't be separated. They're both part of this phenomena of, of enjoyment, no? You know, when I when I hear that quote from uh, from Juan, it actually takes me back to your uh, to your first line, Kara. Uh, uh, I shouldn't say the first line, but the 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 first part of your op ed that I think starts to make the statement, which is when you I can't remember if you heard or you read that line that there are more than enough Blancos um, in the field. That that's that's what sets you off to write this piece, and. To me, the heart of that reaction is exactly what Juan's saying. We got to stop pointing fingers at each other. We got to stop othering someone for making a decision to do X or to do Y. Hey, I'm all in favor of honestly. I'm, like, I want to go out right now and try that uh, that tequila aged in a in a coffee barrel. But I don't want the guy who makes that tequila to be throwing everybody making blancos under the bus. Interesting. I like the the idea about everybody coming together and not pointing fingers, but I'm going to tell you that's never going to happen in a million years. <laughs> I've heard another piece about um, additives in tequila. I mean, another divisive uh, practice and concept and something also that gets people really hot under the collar. I, I also read a study from from another tequila producer just the other day talking about how People are going to become, and that this is their their turn of phrase, purity crusaders. Uh, that people are going to go be going forward, you know, pointing fingers and you know, you know, wagging their fingers at, at those who are are using additives in ways that are considered antithetical to you know a, a pure tequila. I'm saying that with air quotes. So I, I don't know. I mean, at the same time, our additives. Does that fall under innovation? Does it fall under good or bad or other? There's always going to be, I think, arguments going on around tequila, always. Well, and I think I think uh, the role that I want to play as somebody who recognizes that I'm more divisive um, uh, than most even, I think, in the industry, but the role that I want to play is to make this about conversations and not arguments. I think it's perfectly fine to disagree with someone, sit down with them, have conversations with them. In fact, more than more than fine, I think it's important that we do that. Um, or we never get to a conclusion. I'm, I'm wide open to the idea that not everything I think and that I do is right or helps to achieve the objectives that I have in mind. Um, and if somebody comes at me hot, arguing, saying that I am evil for doing what I'm doing, I'm really not open to hearing what they're saying. If they come at me with a different viewpoint and want to suggest that here's here's another way to look at this, that's a conversation that we can have. I don't think you get people to change their minds by yelling at them. I think you get people to change their minds by giving them space to be wrong. Interesting. It, but I mean, from my point of view, I'm I'm a journalist. I'm a storyteller. I want to take all these different points of view, and and I'm fine if people are arguing one another as long as I get to report on what they're saying. You know, it's it's a big world, lots of room for lots of different opinions. Yeah, you are the aggregator. That is your role, and that in in fact is part of how you move the conversation forward. A large part of how you move that conversation forward. So, well, I'm thinking the the perspective of time also in this argument and how this this like 
disagreements have been happening for six centuries of distilling tequila in Mexico and then 2,000 years of fermenting agaves. I would like to think that all of these nuances and diversions, as Luke called them, are just adding up to this incredible tradition, again, of, of making tequila in Mexico. There's a lot to be learned, and I'm looking forward to that and to sharing all of those flavors with Mexican people, everything that you're getting in the U.S. So great to think about that, and, and thank you for all the, all the new ideas that you presented today. Beautiful. Thank you, Anna. And uh, Kara, anything, uh, any final words? I think it's great that there's all kinds of innovation going on in the, in the world of tequila and, and agave in general. Um, I'm all for more innovation, but I always hope that the end result is going to somehow be better and interesting and, and more worthwhile than what's already out there. You know, innovation for innovation's sake just isn't enough. Beautiful. Okay. Thank you both so much. I will catch up with you next episode. Hasta pronto. Hasta pronto. Thank you. You've been listening to Agave Road Trip, the critically acclaimed award-winning podcast that helps gring ex-bartenders better understand agave, agave spirits, and rural Mexico. We're blessed with sound engineering by Roy Sierra and a theme song performed by Gabriel Oliveira and Marco Ricos. Sign up to become a road tripper and listen to more episodes at agaveroadtrip.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please let us know. And if you hated it, well, I'm sure you'll let us know that too. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Agave Road Trip. Agave Road Trip is a production of 10 Angry Pit Bulls, Inc. Agave Road Trip is powered by Simplecast. Thank you for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. To subscribe to the Heritage Radio Newsletter, enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with Heritage Radio Network on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find Heritage Radio Network at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization using the power of education educational storytelling about food to build a more equitable, resilient food system. Heritage Radio Network couldn't do that without support from listeners like you. Become a part of the world's most innovative community today. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the Heritage Radio Network family by becoming a member. To become a member of the Heritage Radio Network, click on the beating heart of our homepage. Heritage Radio Network can become addictive. Programming you here on Heritage Radio Network might lead you to eat, drink, and listen to more programming on Heritage Radio Network. If you drink, please do not drink and drive. Drink responsibly, drive responsibly, eat responsibly too, and listen to Heritage Radio Network responsibly. To listen to Heritage Radio network responsibly wear protective earbuds while wearing protective earbuds do not drive do not walk either sit in a comfortable chair if that comfortable chair has a hard seat please remember to stretch every 30 minutes if you stretch every 30 minutes please stay within your defined stressing capacity and consult a doctor who specializes in stretching if you don't have a doctor maybe dr ryan acock the cocktail md can help you out thanks for listening agave road trip out